The Slate Culture Gabfest is brought to you by Prudential's 4040 Vision, a multimedia microsite exploring what life and the future looks like to today's 40-somethings. Hear what inspires real people, the hopes they have for tomorrow, and much more. See yourself in their stories at slate.com slash 4040vision slash family. The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest Checkin' It Thrice edition. It's Wednesday, December 23rd, 2015. On today's show, we do something a little different. Gab Fest and Seasonal Cheer come together as we discuss the year in admirable things. That is, we discuss the top 10 lists in books, TV, and movies with Laura Miller, Willa Paskin, and Dana Stevens, respectively, the Slate critics in charge of those various departments. And Laura Miller will be joining us to fill in with Julia Turner, who's out on holiday. Laura, welcome to the show. Thank you. Dana, great to see you as always. Hello, Stephen. <laughs> I've been the insincerity, you already. <laughs> the insincerity flows <laughs> over the airwaves. <laughs> silky, silky insincerity, though. Not everyone gets silky, Dana. Um, <laughs> all right, before we go any further, though, Dana, we do have some um, business to attend to. What do we got? All the business I have, Steve, is to mention to our Slate Plus listeners that our Slate Plus segment today is going to be related to Christmas week. This is going to be our least favorite Christmas songs, which will hopefully open into a conversation about terrible music in general. (laughs) There's a teaser. All right, moving on. Uh, Willa, welcome to the show. Hi. Uh, The theme of the show is that, uh, as you may have heard, is that... um, Everyone loves reading top 10 lists and everyone hates writing them. Um, where do you fall on this uh, side of the Oh, play? I thought that was going to be like an injunction not to complain about writing top 10 lists. <laughs> but um, where do I fall? You know, I feel like there's a certain amount of throat clearing and hand wringing. It's like incumbent upon a critic to do just to acknowledge the depth of the field that they cover. But, um, mm-hmm. you know, there was a lot of really good TV this year. So it was it was in some ways harder and in some ways easier. Like there felt like a plethora of things to choose from and then you actually have to do the choosing and you feel like you're leaving things out. A a golden age embarrassment of riches in TV. It must be hard to put together um, a list of only 10. Okay, painful as it might be, Willa, um, for you, it will be a pleasure to everyone else for you to read your lists just so we know what names we're banding about here. Um, I'm going to go in reverse order just to like create some tension. (laughs) Okay. So number 10, Unreal. Number nine, Transparent. Number eight, Nathan for You. Number seven, The Americans. Number six, Empire. Number five, The Jinx. Number four, Jane the Virgin. Number three, Catastrophe. Number two, Mr. Robot. And number one, dun 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 dun, dun Halt and Catch Fire. Whoa. Whoa. <laughs> Surprise number one. Uh, Even in the room. A bold choice. Well, one of the things that's surprising about that number one is it's not a new show, right? It's been around for a while, and you like it because it's improved this yes, year. Yes, it's, it's, it's second season, and its first season was garbage, and its second season... I mean, it wasn't garbage. It was not as good as its second season. <laughs> it went from garbage to number one in a single year? <laughs> well, I have to say, this is one of the things about like the theatrics of list-making. Todd Vanderwerf, who's a critic for Vox, he did like a funny thing this year where he put a list, and instead of actually putting 
any content, like any names in it. He was just like, number one is the thing you think that's sort of surprising. Number two, actually your best show of the year. Like three, weird thing more people have watched. Like four, maybe think about putting Mad Men here. I mean, I'm paraphrasing, but there is something to it where like I looked at my list and I was like, that's not exactly wrong. So I also had a lot of um, internal sort of overthinking and strum and drang about Mr. Robot versus Halt and Catch Fire where I was like, maybe I'd put Mr. Robot first, but then I was like, why am I always putting all these butch macho shows number one? Like, I don't want to be that person. I really liked watching Halt and Catch Fire more. Like, I'll just, do, you know, and who knows? It's, it's a toss-up. Uh, this is like watching Inside Out all over again. I love <laughs> Yeah, I have all the people <laughs> in my brain. They're all, like, focused. Sadness. Sat this one out, though. Um, Willa, not to start with an absence, but um, no Fargo second season? Dude, I'm so happy you asked, mm. because literally my whole list is, like, written against Fargo. Not because Fargo is a terrible show. I don't think Fargo is a terrible show. I thought the first season was hugely overrated because it was just, like, so obviously what we expect great dramas to be about at this point, a bunch of men being men and tortured about it. I thought the um, Billy Bob Thornton character of Lorne Malvo was, like, like, the fact that he was so good at violence really undercut to me anything that was sort of original or interesting about the show because I thought it sort of deified, again, this guy who's just, like, a killing machine and anything else that it said about the show, like, anything else that the Noah Hawley, who makes the show, said about it was sort of moot to me because I think it just made him seem so cool. The second season, I think, has been much better. I recently watched episodes 9 and 10, and I was actually really moved by them. For a lot of reasons, I thought it was just sort of captured more, like, the sadness of violence and the sadness of, like, these intractable, horrible conflicts and the way decent people keep running into terrible things. That said, um, it's just, like, not my show. I don't love it and in that way. And I also, I, I kind of aggressively don't like the way that we keep just anointing these shows that sort of look like a duck and quack like a duck, the duck being serious anti-hero dramas, as as like the next best thing we all have to watch. I think we're used to doing that. I think there's a huge structural incentive to do that. And I don't actually think they're better than a lot of the shows on my list, or certainly they're not doing more original things. So no Fargo, period. <laughs> this is sort of mirrors a lot of the arguments that people have about the novel, where there are certain types of novels that are seen as serious and certain types of novels that are not seen as serious, and there's a major gender element to that, and there's a, a constant ongoing debate. It's been interesting to see it come up in television, the, the, the idea of what is the serious, most artful right. television show versus what is the you know thing that we're not going to rank as high it's not seen as as meaty or as intense or you know as serious i mean there are two other things on my list that fall into this category and one is the leftovers and the other is better call saul and i liked the leftovers and better call saul tremendously i like them both much more than i like fargo i didn't put them on my list in a more sort of honest way like it didn't bring me glee not to have them on my list maybe but um they weren't in my top 10 anyway but those are another two shows i think that you see on a ton of lists there was a compilation of tv critics lists that hit fix puts together and you know fargo was number one and leftovers was on the top 10 and better call saul was also in the top 10 and on the best new shows list and i think that i think those shows are very good and i think they're sort of dense in a way we are familiar with and and, and attribute a lot of value to but 
you know, I think there's more interesting stuff happening. And that's making me think of this kind of meta question about lists that I'm sure came up in all of our compilation processes, which is there is something like a kind of genre affirmative action sometimes going on in list making. And I often feel at the end of my list like it doesn't have enough comedy on it. Comedy is film comedy is one of the hardest things to do well. When there is a good film comedy that everyone laughs at, it's a rare, miraculous achievement. And yet so few top 10 lists will have just a straight ahead comedy on them. So often I'll knock something somber out of one of the spots just to put in a, a really good comedy, which was Spy this year. And my, my my problem with that is I totally agree, but the truth is when I think about shows that like really got me, like the thing that TV can do, you're like, I really just cannot stop watching the show and I want to know what happens next. I'm so enraptured. So often happens more with dramas than it does with comedies because that's not even what comedies are really trying to do. So you end up kind of like really having to contort even yourself because it's not always that, you know, you loved comedies in sort of a different way that maybe is undervalued even, you know, in your own mind. I will say I have two comedies. Well, I have one pure comedy on my list, one definite comedy, and two, like, sort of comedies. So that's almost half. Yeah. Uh, Willa, let's back up a second. Tell me a little bit. Why don't we listen to a clip from Halt and Catch Fire, and why don't you set it up a little bit as a show? I have to admit I'm completely, completely unfamiliar with it. Okay, so Halt and Catch Fire is now in its second season on AMC, um, and it sort of started, or it did start, in fact, as this period drama set in the early 80s in Dallas at sort of the dawn of the personal computer age about a sort of seemingly like Don Draper salesman type played by Lee Pace and um, a maybe even Walter White kind of engineer type played by uh, Scooty McNair. And it seemed like it was going to be the show about these two men trying to basically build a personal computer, one of them this suave, slick ad guy and this other, this sort of like genius technical person. The genius technical person was married to a woman named Donna who sort of seemed like a very stereotypical put-upon wife. And the Lee Pace character hired uh, a hacker named Cameron who um, has short blonde hair, like a pixie haircut, and kind of looks exactly like Watts from some kind of wonderful, this 80s movie starring um, Mary Stuart Masterson. And she was like this sort of, you know, not quite on the spectrum, but like maybe on the spectrum, genius coder. And it seemed like it was about these two men with these two women sort of helping them. And over the course of the, four, the first season, even, it kind of started to just basically flip so that by the beginning of the second season, it turned out like the men, sort of in a kind of like allegory of everything that's happening in TV this season, got sort of pushed to the sides, like their company didn't quite work out. And Donna and Cameron started their own basically gaming company in very Silicon Valley style, but in early 80s, Dallas with like a bunch of dirty 20-something boys like sleeping at their house and trying to start one of the first online communities for video games. I think we should unplug the cabinets. Uh, figure out a better power solution. Maybe rewiring everything more carefully will help with the lag. <laughs> you mean take the network offline? Yeah, for a couple hours. We can't do that. We're already getting complaints about the outages. It's only going to get slower if we don't figure out what's wrong. that no. We blew a breaker, didn't we? We didn't blow the breaker. I think we blew the whole block. It's basically every episode kind of almost has a video game structure. Uh, it looks like a very serious drama, and it feels like that sometimes. But they have, like, some task that's very hard to do for their business. And, like, basically, can they achieve that? Can they unlock this level? And they do, essentially, only for there at the end to be some other obstacle in their future. Um, so in addition to being, I think, extremely thoughtful about women in the workplace and long-term marriages and a lot of really, really 
contemporary issues, it's really, really fun to watch. I found it to be really fun to watch. There also is like an adorable love story involving Cameron and this cute boy coder that I won't tell you how it ends, but like felt like a rom an eighties rom com just like dropped in. And that's I mean, I could not like want to watch that more, basically. <laughs> if that was an if an eighties rom com was dropped into every show on television, I would be like, you know, it didn't really work, but I liked it anyway. So um yeah, that's my pitch for Halt and Catch Fire. I mean I think it is I would say it's deeply flawed and sometimes inconsistent, but I think we kind of underplay how inconsistent and flawed most television programs are just because the length of the medium lends itself to mistakes um, and nothing is perfect, you know, not even Mad Men, not even Breaking Bad, but that this was really fun to watch and really fun to watch them figure out how to better themselves. Willa, before we, we close your segment, I just have to say that I was really, really psyched that you included Catastrophe, the Sharon Horgan, Rob Delaney comedy, which was something that we talked about on the Gabfest and that I binge watched all six episodes of. As you said, it's nice that it's there are only six, so you don't feel too disgusting after you binge. And of all the shows you listed, that's the one that I'm most anxiously awaiting the second season of. I am also eagerly awaiting the second season of Catastrophe. And when I like look over this list... I'm trying to think of the show that I'm, like, most excited about at this very, very second, just to see what it does. And I have to say that Mr. Robot, I'm really, really interested to see what that show does for its second season because its first season was great and new and angry and furious and relied on this really big twist. And it's very hard to make a show that's about a twist post-twist. So I will be really eager to see how that goes. Well, all right. Well, our guest was Willa Paskin, the TV critic for Slate. Her top 10 TV shows of 2015 list is on Slate.com. From raunchy pregnant sex to a burping serial killer, I did not want to leave out the wonderful <laughs> subheader. Uh, Willa, Merry Christmas. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you. All right. Well, now is the moment in our podcast where we talk about our sponsor, Dana Stevens. What do we have? This week's podcast is brought to you by Prudential's 4040 Vision, which is a multimedia microsite that explores what life and the future looks like for today's 40-somethings. Today's 40-somethings are charting their own courses, sometimes by choice, but many times out of necessity. Caring for aging parents, starting new careers midlife, juggling today's financial realities with planning for retirement, and much more. Prudential's 4040 Vision brings these challenges and others into sharper focus through real-life interviews and commentary from 40-somethings. Plus, a compelling four-part podcast on first-time parenthood in your 40s with radio and television personality Faith Saley. Experience it all at slate.com slash 4040vision slash family. Okay, Steve, back to the show. All right. Well, moving on to books, Laura Miller is, of course, the book and culture critic uh, for Slate. And her 10 favorite books of 2015 is here. Laura, I love the fact that it's favorite, not best of. I think that that's a, a little grace note. And... Um, uh, you begin the piece with a little bit of the state of uh, publishing. Why don't you talk a little bit about that, and then we'll get into some specific titles. Yeah, I mean, I say in the piece that the that the sort of mood of the book buyer and, quote, reader of today is sort of bracketed between, like, wanting to face up to some really hard realities, the Ta-Nehisi Coates book, Between the World, and me, you know, which is a book about race, and the really existential dilemma of, of being a black man in America. And then the other big phenomenon in book selling is this explosion of adult coloring books. They're, they're everywhere. There's, it seems like there's a zillion of them. And the idea is that people are so stressed out by modern life that they just 
want to sit there and color in these elaborate patterns. And there's just no, seems to be no limit to people's appetite for these books. Do you see people doing it? When I read this in your list, I thought, well, isn't that a phenomenon I should be seeing in cafes and trains all over town? I haven't seen any adults coloring. Yeah, I think people like to do it while they're doing something else. I mean, it's also sort of a, a, an activity of the multitasking era. So I don't think people sit in cafes or on trains and do it. I think they might sort of half watch a television show while doing it, the way people might knit or something like that. I mean, I think it's a soothing thing to do with your hands that's not too taxing to the mind. Hmm. All right. Well, let's get to the books um, that were your favorites of the year. What what made your list? Well, I'll, I'll read them. And this is in alphabetical order, not order of preference, because I that is something I could not do. The Art of Memoir by Mary Carr, Dreamland, A True Tale of America's Opiate Epidemic by Sam Quinones, The Fox and the Star by Coralie Bickford-Smith, Get in Trouble by Kelly Link, Loving Day by Matt Johnson, On the Move by Oliver Sacks, the Point of Vanishing by Howard Axelrod. Purity by Jonathan Franzen. Stepside Pops by Kate Beaton. And The Sympathizer by, and I'm afraid I'm going to mangle the pronunciation of this name, which is Vietnamese, Viet Thanh Nguyen. Laura, let me ask a slightly obnoxious question to mm. launch us here. Was it harder coming up with 10 that you really admired, or was it harder limiting it to 10 that you really admired? Well, that's a that's a tricky question. This year, because I was dividing up my list with Katie Waldman, who also had a 10 best books list, it was pr- maybe a little harder to come up with 10 that were really stellar because Katie got H's for Hawk. I mean, I got the, the Kelly Link story collection, but, you know, I probably loved H's for Hawk as much as I loved any other book on this list. And there are a couple of others of the on her list that I would have seriously considered in addition to the Ta-Nehisi Coates, A Little Life by uh, Hanya Yanagihara, and, you know, a couple of other books on her list might have been grappling more for a spot on mine, although I did really like all of these books a lot. The trickiest one for me was I wanted to pick a book that was really in-depth, long-form reporting more than sort of just beautiful writing. And I really wavered a lot between Dreamland, which is about an incredible three-part story about how so many Americans became addicted to heroin, which is a new epidemic, and a book about ISIS by J.M. Berger that was in my opinion, the best book on ISIS that was published this year. And in the end, I picked Dreamland because I feel like people are less familiar with that story, weirdly enough, even though it's it's our homeland. Oh, and then the other thing is that I did not like as much fiction this year as I have in previous years. And it was kind of a strain not to fill my list with memoirs. I mean, I had to sort of consciously say, you know, it can't be all memoirs. 
You know, I was going to say that the only book on your list that I've currently read, although there are many on it that thanks to you I now plan to read, especially the Kate Beaton book, which looks hilarious. Um, but the one that I have read is Mary Carr's The Art of Memoir. I happen to be an acolyte. I basically worship Mary Carr and write, read everything she writes. Um, but I wanted to hear you talk about memoir and its place in, you know, your your list making and also just its its power in the culture right now. I mean, do you feel like memoirs are coming at you so hard and fast that you have to put up a memoir filter to screen some out? I actually think memoirs are in a sort of popular lull right now. Like they're not tearing up the bestseller lists the way that they used to. Mary Carr basically kind of refers to a heyday of the memoir that I think is actually past. But that means that the memoirs we do get tend to be less formulaic and more extraordinary because the form has really, in its modern incarnation, has really matured. So H is for Hawk and On the Move are books by by someone who's not a particularly distinguished person, but who has really applied the story of her life to a really solid, you know, kind of nonfiction through line of the of the taming of this hawk. So it's not just my father died and I feel really sad. It also has this other element of the of the taming of the hawk. There's this understanding that just relating your trauma is not enough anymore. And then with the Oliver Sacks book, well, he is a great man who's had a, had an incredible life, but there is a writerly quality to it that is much greater than many sort of celebrity or notable person memoirs that we might have seen in the past. So I think that the sort of personality-based memoir has – the writing quality has been upped a lot since the the memoir boom that Mary Carr describes. And then the sort of very personal memoir has has had to try harder to distinguish itself. And so we get more extraordinary works like H's for Hawk. Laura, you say that not as much fiction caught your eye this year. You also have an interesting observation that I had never heard that you said was sort of a general truism that as we get older, we lose interest in fiction and read more nonfiction. I, I had never thought of it that way before, although I have been reading more nonfiction lately. But I wanted to hear about what, what are some of the uh, the invented stories that caught your eye this year? Well, they tend to be by authors whose work I already knew I liked, like Matt Johnson Loving Day is a really great satire of what it's like to be mixed race. It's a great treatment of a of a really painful subject that is not m- merely light. The short story writer Kelly Link is one of my favorite writers alive, and so including Get in Trouble, her short story collection, was kind of a no-brainer for me. Then I had sort of, you know, a surprise novel from um, Viet Thanh Nguyen, which is uh, The Sympathizer, which is like a a debut that you just can't even believe how accomplished it is. And I've been telling people it's sort of like this amazing fusion of Graham Greene and Evelyn Waugh. It has both that sort of world-weary moral conundrum element that you associate with Greene and then this kind of outrageous Hollywood satire that you associate with Evelyn Waugh. And that was a complete surprise. And then the one that I guess is the most controversial in some ways is Jonathan Franzen's novel, Purity, which I just feel has become so overdetermined. People are so worked up about him and his What his, his success means, yeah. right. And, and whether, you know, if one of the female characters is depicted in a negative way, whether that means that he hates all women. I mean, it's just, I, I just feel like just 
put all of that aside, it's just a really enjoyable novel by someone who really, really, really knows what he's doing. Hmm. All right. Well, Laura, obviously you're going nowhere, but I'll thank you nonetheless. Thanks a lot for coming on to uh, talk about the your favorite books from 2015. All right. Before we move on to our next segment, Dana, we, we have something of an announcement, don't we? That's right, Steve. Given that this is our holiday week show, we wanted to give listeners the chance of giving the gift of Slate Plus to another Slate fan in your life. If you're not a subscriber to Slate Plus already, here are some of the benefits of membership. You get ad-free podcasts. You get bonus podcast segments, i.e. us talking about our most hated Christmas carols this week. And you get access to the ambitious multi-part podcast called Slate Academies. We talked a little bit about the Slate Academy about slavery on our show, which was fantastic with Rebecca Onion and Jamel Bowie. So those are just some of the benefits that you get with a membership to Slate Plus. If you want to give Slate Plus to a loved one, there is no wrapping required. Just visit slate.com give plus for details. Okay, Steve, what's next? All right, well, moving on, the top 10 movies of 2015. The year in cinema is an overwhelming banquet, says Dana Stevens. Dana, welcome back to the show. <laughs> it's a pleasure to be here. <laughs> Dive right in. What banquet? What what sort of banquet is this? Well, I, to my surprise, I actually did have more movies crowding onto the list than I could fit, which I didn't think would happen this year for the simple reason that I was on sabbatical for three months. So I, w- I started out behind and felt like I never caught up with this year's movies. I still feel like I have so many to see before we start Movie Club next week. But yet I managed to have plenty of them elbowing their way onto a list and some runners up as well. So shall I start off by reading the titles? Let's hear it. And again, I alphabetize like Laura does because I, I can't bring myself to rank. It's just it's too cruel. So here they go. Andrew Hayes, 45 Years, starring Charlotte Rampling and Tom Courtenay. That opens on Christmas Day. Amy, the documentary about Amy Winehouse. Todd Haynes's Carol, which is an adaptation of a Patricia Highsmith novel about a lesbian romance. Diary of a Teenage Girl, which is a debut film, an amazing debut film from a young woman named Marielle Heller. Inside Out, the Pixar blockbuster. Joshua Oppenheimer's The Look of Silence, which we talked about on the Gabfest. It's the follow-up to the, to the act of killing, his extraordinary documentary about the Indonesian genocide. A Brazilian movie called The Second Mother, starring the wonderful Regina Cazé. Tom McCarthy's Spotlight, which I predict is probably going to win the Oscar, and it would not make me sad if it did for Best Picture. Spy, which I mentioned before as the, uh, the affirmative action comedy on my list. But it's not affirmative action in the sense that it didn't deserve a spot. It's just it's an unusual inclusion. Paul Feig's Spy, starring Melissa McCarthy. And Sean Baker's Tangerine, which was a strange and inventive movie shot on an iPhone about a pair of transgender prostitutes on Christmas Eve. So those are my 10. Dana, I can't help noting an absence on this list. The new J.J. Abrams Star Wars is nowhere to be found. <laughs> well, truth be told, I think everybody saw that movie too late to put it on their 10 best list, even if it was something that you had wanted to include. And me not being a huge Star Wars head, I did like the new Star Wars movie quite a lot. It would not have made my list. But even if it was your favorite movie of the year, they wouldn't show it to us. Disney wouldn't show it to us until, you know, mm. practically Christmas Eve. So. It's not like they're going to care that it didn't make anyone. Yeah, happy. exactly. Was, That's the most. I was going to say egg, all, egg all over their face. Yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, okay. So Laura, any guesses which her favorite is? Well, I think you know Dana so much better than I do. Um, Forty-five days. That's my guess. Yeah. Forty-five years. That's 45 a very years, good guess. Then, That's a very good guess. And if I'd had to rank them, oh! that might have been runner-up. <laughs> but no. And in fact, if you had read my list with care, you might have noticed because I think I do mention it as my single favorite. It's Carol. Todd Haynes's Carol. Oh, well, that was my second uh, guess. Yeah, <laughs> I loved that movie. Yeah, I mean, I think Carol for me was one of the, the movies this year that 
that brought together form and content more perfectly than in anything else I can think of. I mean, it was just a movie with, made with such aesthetic care and love and so much um, artistry and craftsmanship put into all the technical parts of the film. And yet it didn't, to me, some critics disagree with this, but it, it never felt cold and technical and overly perfect. You know, it felt like it had a lot of room for passion and, and romance mm-hmm. within. Mm. Um, Dana, any generalizations to make about the year in movies? Did you get a sense that you were gravitating towards small, mid, large budget films? Anything in the mix kind of tip you off to what kind of a year it's been? I mean, I wish I had as, as nice of an overarching structure as Laura had for her list with her idea about coloring books versus Tanisi Coates. But I, I don't know. I guess I would say, I mean, the reason that I sort of led with this, this image of the banquet is that I think global cinema is really exciting right now. You know, I think th- there could be a lot of things you could say about Hollywood that would be kind of hand wringy, right, about, about blockbusters sort of taking over the market and it being harder to get mid-sized films made. But in terms of the global marketplace of interesting cinema, I mean, there's there's no lack at all. And and the things that made it onto my runners-up list, things like um, White God, the Hungarian film that stars a dog, an actual non-CGI'd trained dog as its main character, which was wonderful, or Mustang, which is this wonderful, wonderful Turkish film about five sisters sort of trying to, to struggle against the, um, the gender restrictions of, of their family. Um, these movies are the kind of thing that would have been hard to come across maybe five or ten years ago. And now, because of all the viewing platforms having multiplied and because, you know, iTunes and Amazon and all these places are grabbing small, interesting movies, there are many more places to see interesting films from parts of the world you might not have seen before. So that may have influenced the list in some way. Also, someone pointed out to me that a whole, whole lot of my movies are either directed by women or have a woman as a protagonist, which wasn't something I set out to do. But that speaks well for the fact that, you know, I don't think cinema is as dominated anymore by the need to have a male protagonist to get people into the theaters. All right. So, Dana, as said at the top of the show, pleasure to read them, drag to make them. I feel like I can always count on you for a meta analysis of what it means to make such lists. (laughs) <laughs> well, I mean, I, I kind of agree with Willa that it's 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 one is lucky to be in the position of having a lot of people presumably wanting to know what your favorite movies, books, or TV shows of the year are. I think that the dread of the list for me comes from the uncomfortable marriage of quantification and qualification, right? It's just that difficulty of numbering, ranking, limiting, putting boundaries around something that you experience at the time is this sort of onslaught of pleasure. You know, that to me is always the most difficult task. And that's why I don't rank. I, I really just I don't rank them because it's, it seems it seems somehow impossible to bring that level of, of quantification to the table. But that said, I mean, I always sit down thinking, oh, God, I'm not going to have enough this year. I really don't have anything to say. And it always, always ends up being the case that, you know, abundance shows itself once you sit down and start to scroll through the movies of the year. And so that part of it is great. With um, with books, I, it's just more inevitable that you have to resign yourself to not having read some of the best books of the year because they're just not enough time, which is one of the things that made it so great that I had a partner um, and that we both got to pick our top 10 because she read books or finished books that I didn't read or finish. And uh, I had felt less anxiety. I mean, there's this kind of fear that you're going to miss something really good. And and then at the same time, you just have to acknowledge that you are going to miss something really good. So you are more zen about it. And in terms of the ranking, it is ridiculous, I think, to try to to rank. I mean, even within favorites, I can't say that, oh, maybe H is for Hawk is my favorite 
book of the year in terms of it made me feel a certain way. But on the other hand, Loving Day, which is a very funny book as opposed to H's for Hawk, which is a very searching and personal book. You know, in the in the right mood, you'd rather be laughing with Matt Johnson than sort of thinking about death with Helen McDonald. Right. In that sense, you can't compare those two things. But yeah. when I say Carol is my favorite, what I'm really it's it's really just about my own pleasure and which movie would I like to unspool in front of my eyes right now if I had a bucket of popcorn in a dark room? It would probably be Carol. Hmm. All right. Well, it is a banquet of a list. Uh, people should check it out at Slate. Uh, Dana, thank you so much for coming on the show. <laughs> Thanks, Steve. All right. Moving on. Now is the moment in our podcast where we endorse Dana. What do you have? Well, since we're talking about lists and the making of lists and whether we love or hate the making of lists, I'm just going to endorse one of my favorite lists to look at at the end of the year. I have to say that for all my resistance to writing one, I do love looking at other people's lists. And there's every year a wonderful video countdown, basically a video essay that um, that includes scenes. That's a montage of scenes from the 25 favorite movies of the year of the critic David Ehrlich. He's done it and put it up on various sites or sometimes just on, on Vimeo or on his own site for years. And uh, this year's is particularly wonderful. It's about 13 minutes long. It contains clips from 25 different movies set to music. But the amazing thing about this montage that he does is just the pacing and the editing is so thrilling that whether or not you've seen most of the movies involved, it makes you really excited to see them. And he also does a good job of sort of teasing you about what they are. So you see all these great mashup of scenes at the beginning and then toward the end the titles start to come in and you start to identify what it was that you were looking at. Anyway, it's beautifully artfully done. David Ehrlich is great. So I recommend that you go to Vimeo and look at his countdown of the 25 top movies of the year. And it's also worth mentioning for those who read my reviews on Slate that David Ehrlich is going to be replacing me next year while I'm on book leave for a few months. So you'll get to read a lot of great criticism from him on Slate. Hmm, fantastic. Um, Laura, what do you got? Well, um, it seems like the, every time I'm on the GabFest, I'm endorsing a television show that's really, really difficult to see. This one is even worse than the last one. It's called Secret Smile. And the reason I'm bringing it up, even though it was made in 2005, is um, I wasn't here when you guys were talking about Jessica Jones. But I can remember watching that show, I, which I really loved, and also thinking, boy, this would be even better if there were no superpowers in it. And actually, a version of that does kind of already exist. It's it's called Secret Smile. It's based on a Nikki French novel. It stars David Tennant and a woman named Kate Ashfield. It came out in the UK. Not It was shown here on, I think, BBC America once. And it's very difficult to even get a DVD of it that's in the proper format. It's about a woman. <laughs> this is why everyone needs a Region 2 player, right? I, I endorse Region 2 DVD yeah. players. <laughs> Actually, you know what, Laura, though, let me quickly interject and say it is playing at a pie stand in Livingston, New York. <laughs> well, it's not really a movie. It's a TV sort of miniseries. It's like it's, you know, four hours, four or five hours long. You can see it on YouTube for free. You just have to search for Secret Smile, David Tennant. It's about a woman who starts going out with a guy. He seems really great. And then he turns out to be like a really creepy control freak who turns all of her friends and, and the police and all of the authorities against her. And what it is is just really, really high quality trash. I mean, you are just never going to find better trash than this. It's really well acted. It's really well written. It's really well directed. And it's just full of crazy, outrageous plot developments and is very fun, but also pretty terrifying because this was my first exposure to David Tennant, which was as a villain. This was before he 
became Doctor Who. And so when he did become Doctor Who, I was like, no way, that guy is really sinister and scary. Mm. And so when I heard that he was going to be the villain in Jessica Jones, I was like, yes, it's a return to form because he's so good at being a scary villain. All right. My endorsement is a seasonal and a cop-out, um, but maybe it will inspire people to watch a movie they w- otherwise wouldn't have seen. But there are such things as lists that are uh, Chris- of Christmas movies that you don't think of as Christmas movies. And I realize that some of my favorite movies sort of are Christmas movies, but you don't think of them as that. So a good example would be Die Hard or Billy Wilder's The Apartment easily one of my four or five favorite movies of all time. But looking at a number of those lists, some other titles came up as well. The Thin Man is a Christmas movie. Uh, It's just such a classic. William Powell and Myrna Loy, if you haven't seen the Thin Man movies, they're just non-negotiable. William Powell is uh, maybe the original American actor on my Read the Phone book list, uh, a man who just embodied magnanimity and elegance. Um, Watching him order a highball in a Thin Man movie is one of the great pleasures of life. Avail yourself of it. Uh, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, a funny meta genre movie, came out a few years ago with uh, Robert Downey Jr., kind of a Christmas movie. Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, especially the remake, which goes into a Christmas party scene from different perspectives of the various characters. This could go on all day, but I'm going to name a single movie that people forget about. It was the comeback movie for the producing partners, Don Simpson and Jerry Bruckheimer, after they burned through all their bridges with Days of Thunder. They decided to make a much smaller movie. They made a comedy called The Ref, which stars uh, Dennis Leary, Judy Davis, and uh, Kevin Spacey. It's, uh, it's, you know, the wonderful thing about Laura... Help me out on this. The wonderful thing about Christmas movies is that Christmas is a time of childhood joy that implants the seed of adult regret and reckoning. Um, I don't know why you need me to help you formulate that. I think you're doing great. (laughs) But don't you sort of agree that that's He just needs your emotional support while forming it. Uh, I just need you to tell me I'm awesome for having said it. You are so awesome for having said that, Steve. (laughs) Thank you, Laura. Uh, But don't you think that that's what Dana, one of you, throw me a lifeline. Isn't that what carries a a Christmas movie, makes them, you know, Bad Santa, uh, any of the ones that I just named? Anyway, check out The Ref, but also add to my list, uh, modify it, um, and uh, throw spitballs at it, as you will, at facebook.com slash culturefest. Laura, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been really fun. Dana, I know you don't think I'm awesome, but just say say it once. I know I'm left out of this mutual backscratch circle. <laughs> yeah. uh, Dana, thank you so much. Thanks, Steve. You'll find links to some of the things that we talked about today at our show page, slate.com slash culturefest. You can email us at culturefest at slate.com or maybe drop us a note at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest. Our producer is Ann Hepperman. Our intern this week is Sheba Bayat. Andy Bowers is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts. The Culture Gap Fest is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster on iTunes.com slash Panoply. Our Twitter feed is at Slate Cult Fest. For Laura Miller and Willa Paskin and Dana Stevens, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll see you soon. Don't you give me all that jive about things you wrote before eyes alive. Because this ain't 1823, ain't even 1970. Now I'm the guy named Curtis Blow, and Christmas is one thing I know. So every year, just about this time, I celebrate it with a rhyme.
Hey, this is Gabriel Roth, and I'm the host of the Slate Serial Spoiler Special, the podcast that accompanies the second season of Serial, which debuted this week. Every week, Slate writer Katie Waldman and I will dig into the latest episode, parsing the latest developments, clues, hints, and ideas, hopefully getting us a little closer to the truth behind the case of Bo Bergdahl. So join us every week after Serial. Serial. 